What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good morning. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, the host of the What to Know podcast. I am here uh, today sitting in the Ritz-Carlton at, um, at Laguna Niguel. It's the Health Evolution Summit. I have the pleasure of interviewing someone that I think you're going to find fascinating. I can tell just based on my research and uh, our pre-conversation. We have Glenn Tallman, who's the CEO, chairman, and founder of Livongo Health, uh, co-founder and partner at Seven Wire Ventures. He's the chancellor of the International Board of Juvenile Diabetes Research and an industry thought leader. Uh, welcome, Glenn. Good morning. Great to be with you today. Great to have you here. And uh, I have to tell you, like one of the stories that I loved, I, I talk a little bit about where people came from and what they did, but I was reading the Inc. article as I was doing my research, and um, it's a fascinating story. You were over in Oxford, you were coming back, and you had, uh, I think, been offered a job at a large consultancy in Boston, my hometown, and uh, at the urging of your mom and then your brother, Howard, um, you went to Chicago. You met a very famous VC, Stan Golder, uh, the late Stan Golder, and in the conversation, he convinced you that you could take a job at a big old, you know, consultancy anytime. Uh, this really changed the path of your future, which, as we go on in the conversation, people will realize is quite amazing. Um, you know, do you ever look back and think, "What if? What if I had taken that job at that big consultancy versus going down this very entrepreneurial path?" Well, first, I don't look back a lot because if I look back a lot, I might get discouraged at all the different uh, decisions I made and mistakes I made. So um, relative to that one, it all turned out pretty well. I had the opportunity to work with and learn from my oldest brother, who is a noted entrepreneur himself. And that was kind of a fun and crazy time watching an IPO, an early stage public company, just tons of learning that occurred, and uh, and that became Chicago became my base up until very recently when I'm now transcoastal and spending a lot of time in uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, so I don't really look back. The other thing I'd say is what appealed to me about management consulting was the ability to do a variety of different things. And if you look at my track record, I think you'll see that I'm interested in business problems. I'm intensely curious about learning and about trying to solve problems. And a lot of people have said, you're a technology executive, you're a software executive, but I really think of myself as a problem solver. And that's what management consultants are supposed to do. Often they give recommendations and they don't stay to implement those. And I get the benefit of being able to look at things and actually see the results. So it's turned out pretty well. Well, it's interesting because I love anytime I do these interviews, you read all this information and sometimes the pieces fit together well and sometimes they're a little more disparate. So you gave me a little bit of a clue to a question I'm going to ask in a couple minutes. Uh, I do want to talk about one of the uh, companies that you're fairly famous for making a huge impact on, and that was Allscripts. Uh, you joined, I believe it was around 97, and it was a $30 million company. Uh, fast forward several years. Um, the company, by the way, was already at its Series J, which uh, I think is the 10th round, and that's somewhat unusual that that happens, uh, unless it's a very successful company like a Facebook that we were talking about. Um, but you took it to IPO, and by the time you were done, it was a $1.4 billion with a B company. Um, that's a rare feat. Can you talk about you know how that happened and uh, what business problems did you solve along the way to make that happen? 
Sure. Well, first of all, um, you know, a lot of people when I took the job really wondered what I was doing. Um, it was Series J and 30 million. You're right. Losing 13, 100 employees, we cut 50 the first day. So, uh, and it had no capital. So it was quite the uh, turnaround is almost too generous a term. And there is a great Harvard Business School article written about it. And the first question to me was about the Series J. And I said, I didn't know there was such thing as a Series J preferred. And of course, I, I learned that. And so it was a fairly tough start. That said, um, along the way, we started with pivoting the business, selling the only profitable part of the business, which was a small specialty PBM. And then our idea was electronic prescribing, taking the literally billions of handwritten prescriptions that were illegible, people were dying. The Institute of Medicine report came out and said almost 7,000 Americans a year were dying from preventable medication errors. And I thought we could change that. So we started with what seemed to be a very simple task, and that was taking prescriptions that were handwritten and illegible and unsafe and turning them into electronic prescriptions. Um, we did that. I remember sending the first electronic prescription from a physician's office to a Walgreens. And I think when I left, we were doing more than half a billion. So that said, once we started to get a device into physicians' hands, they said, can we do other things? Can we capture charges? Can we dictate? And before you know it, we had built what was really a stealth electronic health record. Um, along the way, we also went into the practice management business, and about 50,000 offices when I left were using Allscript systems to do their billing and their scheduling and the like. So it became a pretty comprehensive solution for not just the physician's office, but ultimately for the hospitals as well. So it was a very interesting ride, a lot of problems to solve, and then some market fluctuations as well. So we went from an $89 stock price down to $2 and then built it all the way back up. And that's a ride that most people don't survive. And it was in part because we had a great business, unlike some of the businesses that collapsed in the internet days. And second, because we had great partners and a great board at the time. So both of those are key components. Well, it's interesting because I remember I started my, well, I had started a few years before at a small agency, but at Fidelity Investments back in 97. And the reason I want to mention this is because I was focused on all things digital at Fidelity and helping them grow. I think people today in this always on world where you don't even think about connectivity, you don't think about, you know, cloud or whatever. 97 was a tough time to really be playing around with anything digital or electronic. So um, if it wasn't a sort of amazing enough story, you know, think back to those days, it really makes it that much more amazing. Well, I've, I've got to tell you one fun story. We went and as you mentioned today, this is second nature, but we went to, um, had shipped equipment to a physician's office and he called and said, well, good news, I've set up the equipment. The only problem is the foot pedal, the cord for the foot pedal isn't long enough. And of course, what he was talking about was a connected mouse. And, uh, you know, the idea was none of these offices were wired. There was no internet. Um, we had to put the everything. We had to wire the offices. We had to drill holes through walls. And so it was quite a different time. And it's almost hard to imagine back then what we uh, now take for granted. Connected foot pedal. That's, uh, that's funny. Um, one of the things that did impress me, and like I said, you alluded to this up front, but 
in addition to being quite successful in the digital health space, and we'll get to your most recent venture um, in a minute, you've co-founded and sold businesses in the solar energy, digital education space. Um, I think this is probably related to your Seven Wire Ventures business. But you've also, you're the exec chairman of Argo T. So, you know, this is what you think it is. It's not a digital firm. And then this was the, probably the most interesting is that you own a business called Ignite Glass Studios. What's the common thread that ties all these businesses together? I think the common thread is passion and that, um, number one, number two, learning and this intense curiosity that I have. So in each case, there's actually a reasonably logical uh, explanation. And we'll start with the last one. So Ignite Glass Studios, my oldest son, Ben, is a glass blower. There was no great place to blow glass in Chicago. In fact, uh, even the school, the Art Institute, had shut down their studio because it was too expensive. So the business problem was, how do we build a studio that's open to the community, that is sustainable, and that can allow not only artists to flourish, but can give back to the community. And so Ignite did that because we turned it into a facility that now hosts events that seats more than 200 people. So we have weddings and um, corporate events. We do corporate team building for all the most innovative companies in Chicago. They bring their people there to learn a new skill, to see how you have to use teamwork when you're dealing with 2,000 degree glass. And then most important, I think, all the profits from the studio are given back to Chicago public schools programs like um, After School Matters, where we bring in young kids, give them an experience in the arts with glass that in many cases changes their lives. So that one was solving a very specific problem. It gave me the opportunity to work with uh, my oldest son, and uh, he now runs the glass studio, and it's uh, self-sufficient and and great. If we look at Argo Tea, that was one where I'm a tea drinker. I walked into a little tea store and you could feel the passion. They just had it right. I met the founder at the time. He had a few stores. Today, um, we ship in, in Argo more than 26 million bottles to everyone from Whole Foods to CVS to Walgreens and a variety of other locations. And uh, we also have more than uh, 60 different cafes around the country doing retail and in hospitals. And, and the idea there was simply to create this amazing experience like we used to have many years ago with tea. Because if you think about the rest of the world, they have tea ceremonies. And they did that because they allowed the tea to brew and they needed to have time to talk while it was brewing. The U.S., we solved it. We took bad black tea, put it in a tea bag, and said, drop it in, and it will taste so bad that you got to kill it with sugar and with, uh, with milk. So we've reinvented that experience, and, uh, and it's been a lot of fun. And along the way, meeting one of the great entrepreneurs, Arsene Avakian, who, uh, who built that and is now going on to build other cool ventures. So, um, so each one of these, I won't go through each one, but... Um, I will mention the solar uh, venture, and that was the idea. It was called SoCor Energy, and SoCor came from solar commercial real estate. And I was flying into O'Hare one day and looked at all the white space on the roofs, and I said, what if that was all solar? And uh, that led to starting a business and partnering with a great young entrepreneur named Pete Cadence, who now runs... Uh, GTI, which is one of the largest cannabis distributors in the country. But 
We built that business. We sold it to Southern California Edison, Edison Industries. It was a great win. And I'm proud to say that we made a big dent um, in the solar space and moved that forward for mid-level commercial solar. So in each case, it's about solving an interesting problem, but there's also a tinge of giving back, figuring out ways that we can build a great business, but also give back and solve a social problem. Well, I love that answer, and I love the diversity of you know the, the places where you've solved problems. Um, I do want to speak of another cool venture, which is your current company, Lavongo. Uh, you founded it in 2014, so you've been at it for a while. You've been growing um, at a good pace. Um, let's talk a little bit about, I think, uh, if I'm getting this correct, it's a consumer digital health company that empowers people with chronic conditions to live better. I think that footprint is probably expanding a little bit with Another piece of news we'll talk about in a minute, but um, what attracted you to, you know, what made you um, decide to, to found the company? And then tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at Livongo. So some years ago, I decided that, you know, I've been fortunate, I've been lucky that I don't have to work every day. I want to work every day, and I wanted to do things that made a difference and that I was passionate about. And that was primarily healthcare. That was the largest part of that focus. A little bit of education thrown in as well, because I think those are the two most important problems we have to face today, and that is keeping our population healthy and making sure it's an educated population. If we do that, we'll figure everything else out. So healthcare um, is a big passion of mine. My youngest son, Sam, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was 8 years old. He's now 22, and and uh, I just saw him yesterday in Seattle. He's studying how to improve brain performance, and so he's off and doing great things. But that his experience with diabetes helped me understand just how broken our current system is, how hard we make it for people with chronic conditions to stay healthy. You would think we'd make it easy for them, but we put more roadblocks in front of them um, than you can imagine. And I saw this. I got involved with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, which, as you mentioned, I'm a chancellor there today, which simply means you've been around so long that they kick you off the board and they say you should be a chancellor. So Here's can, a fancy title for you. Yeah. And, uh, but they're doing amazing things in raising money for research for a cure. But while we're waiting for a cure, we have to take care of people. And we have to make it easier to keep them healthy. So when I was looking for what's next, after all scripts, um, I was looking around. I knew it had to be healthcare, and I knew that the most challenging problem we had was chronic conditions. Because the good news about our health system is we're really good if you need heart surgery of doing it and getting it right. And we're good if you have a broken arm of fixing it right. And while we can improve the process a lot, especially from a cost standpoint, um, the actual really difficult challenges there we know how to do better than anywhere else in the world. But what we haven't figured out is how do we take care of an increasing number of Americans and people around the world with chronic conditions like diabetes. More than 32 million Americans have diabetes, about 2 million with type 1, 30 million with type 2, spending $250 billion a year on diabetes. Hypertension, even larger than diabetes. And you go on, then you say mild you know, depression issues. And if you look at you know, high cholesterol, and if you look at these, you understand that they alone will bankrupt um, our government, 
and our country if we don't get a handle on them. So it seemed like a sufficiently large problem uh, to go after. And I had this direct experience of saying, I know people want to be healthy, and they want to be better, and they want to be happy. So if they really want to, if we made it easier, not harder, for them to be healthy, I bet you they would. And I don't think anybody wants to prick their finger multiple extra times a day if they don't have to. So they're not going to use more strips. So rather than charging them for strips, why don't we make it easy and give them the strips? Because what we're trying to do is keep them out of the hospital and keep them healthy. So some very simple ideas like that led to the founding of Livongo. And interestingly, you know, every company has a vision and a mission statement. And in most cases, they don't mean a whole lot. They're not actionable. And at Livongo, we spent a lot of time beginning with the name. And the name came from research. We asked people with chronic conditions, not just diabetes, but chronic conditions. We said, um, what's your focus? And we expected them to say my diabetes. And they said, no, I hate my diabetes. I just want to live my life, and I'm on the go. So leave me alone, make it easy to stay healthy, and just let me live my life. And so we brought in a namer who helped us, and he looked at all this data, and he said, they want to live their life on the go. You will be Livongo. And I said, gosh, that seems easy. Do I have to pay for this? He said, absolutely, you do. And uh, so the idea was how do we empower people, not diabetics, don't label them, not PTSD people. No, guess what? If you went through what some of our veterans went through, you'd have a lot of stress too. It's not a disorder. And if you were, had diabetes and hypertension and felt bad every day, you might be a little depressed too. That's not a disorder. That's a natural response. Let's focus on how do we give people the tools to stay healthier. And that's really what it's about. And if you look at that mission statement, while we're known at Livongo for diabetes, there's nothing about diabetes in that mission statement. It's about how do we empower people to get healthy and make it easier. And that's what we're focused on. Well, now you have $105 million more million to be able to do that in a new company uh, called Retrofit, uh, which is a weight loss um, digital health platform. Uh, the first one you announced, your ra- recent raise, I think a week or two ago, and then you announced the acquisition yesterday. What does this mean on top of all that greatness that you're already doing? Well, first of all, uh, you know, we look at and I, this goes back to that mission statement. It wasn't about diabetes or hypertension or any other silo. And one of our challenges in our healthcare industry today is we look at things in silos. And yet each of us is a whole person. And so our goal is to focus on the whole person and create an experience, a platform that says whatever your issue is, we'll make it easy to take care of. You're not going to have five people call you. You know, and each one calls and each one gives you different advice. We're going to have one integrated experience for you that allows you to be healthy. So if you think about it that way, people with type 2 diabetes, there's a lot of issues with weight. There's a lot of issues with nutrition. So we knew that was a gap if we wanted to get to this idea of the whole person, taking care of the whole person. And some people said, gosh, it didn't take you long to start spending that $105 million. The reality is we've had our eyes on retrofit for a while and uh, been watching them, been seeing their success. They've had a lot of success, a great product. It's evidence-based. You know, it's, it's a, they've got a, an approved DPP product. And so from that standpoint, 
you know, we always looked at it. We have, while we're headquartered in Mountain View, we have a facility in Chicago. Um, they're in Chicago, although many of their coaches, which is one of the gems of that company, are all around the country, just like many of our coaches, our certified diabetes educators are around the country. So it was as natural and as great a fit as you'll ever find in uh, an acquisition, what I think of as a merger, because this is really about putting two similar cultures together. They had great leadership, they had great commitment, and so it was a natural way to fill out that platform. Well, congratulations, that's amazing news, and I am quite sure you will spend that money wisely based on your track record. This is the point where I do like to shift gears a little bit to some questions I ask all of our guests and you and I in our prep for this. I think um, people are going to appreciate these next few answers. The first one I like to ask, and you said this is a tough one because you have been nitpicked over and, and looked at quite a bit, but what's something that people don't know about you that you're willing to share? Well, I think people on this podcast may not know um, that while I'm a lot of people think of me as a technology person or a software person, um, I spent a year living with and studying the Amish people in Pennsylvania. No electricity, no screens, and had an amazing year and learned a lot about it. And I often get this question what's a social anthropologist, which is what my degrees are in? What's a social anthropologist doing running technology companies? And while it's taken me more than 20 years to figure out a good answer, I have one now. And that is that what I studied in social anthropology and with the Amish was how cultures change. And if you think about how cultures change today, how do they change? They change most quickly with software. And, you know, we mentioned Facebook earlier, but we've talked about the Facebook revolution, about how news spreads so quickly. The good and the bad of software is what we're debating today. And so, but all of that change is coming from our phones, which have software that allows us to connect, ideally for the good, but I think we're starting to understand that there's inherent risk in that as well. So, you know, I think of anything I do, anything we do with software is about how do we change things for the better? Because otherwise, why would you use it? And, uh, and really, that was my interest in studying different cultures around the world with social anthropology. The other interest was this idea of just being curious and loving to learn. Why do people in different areas do things differently and why do they do them the same? And so I think that's come in quite handy as kind of a basis for what we do today in so many areas, in so many businesses. Well, that's a super cool story and uh, I've always been fascinated with the Amish, so I can imagine you could probably write a few books on that topic. Um, second, speaking of books, question I'd like to ask is for our very smart interviewees to share a book they've read, either you know, business, nonfiction, uh, anything of their choice that they'd like to talk about with the audience. So I have to tell you that, first of all, I don't read books anymore. I listen to them on tape. I usually listen to them at 2x uh, while I'm running, and I find it, it's a great way to absorb a lot of information, and uh, it's interesting 2x sounds quickly, but once you get used to it, you can't imagine how slow you were listening to something before because our minds work pretty quickly. Um, in terms of books, I try to read a book a week. Um, and most recently, I love this book called When, W-H-E-N, When. And it talks about sometimes what we do is less important than when we do it. 
And there's just fascinating information in there that literally, in addition to reading it, I've actually changed certain times I have different meetings, I've changed my day, and there's just some fascinating stuff in there, including some stuff about everything from in the healthcare profession, don't get surgery on Friday because your error rate is something like 2x the rest of the week. Um, when you get surgery during the day matters. If you're coming up for parole, um, when you come up for parole can make as much as a 40% difference in terms of whether you're going to get it. If you go first thing in the morning, you're going to have 40% more likelihood of getting paroled than right before lunch. And fascinating data that can actually you can put to work. So that's, uh, um, that's the latest book, but there's a lot of them, a lot of great writing out there. Well, it's funny, two things. One, I do actually usually caveat, especially for busy folks like yourself, you know, is it something you've read or listened to on Audible? I have a long commute every day, so I do a lot of Audible books. Um, but the book, I believe the full title is When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing by Daniel Pink. That's correct. So if correct. you're looking for it, I am actually... I hear a lot of cool books, but that's one that I'm fascinated. It sounds a little bit tied to Freakonomics. Do you remember that when that book yep. came out where it yep. had sort of these stats that pulled things together that you didn't necessarily always understand when you first saw them? So Yeah, Dan Ariely writes a lot of books. There's one called Predictably Irrational, another one along those lines that says that turns out we always think people are very rational and predictable. Turns out they're irrational but very predictable. So you can expect people to do things that don't technically make sense, but they do them and they do them consistently. And that's kind of fascinating as well. Yeah, we are not the snowflakes. Our parents would like to think that we are. Um, last question, and this is one I always love to hear the answer, but uh, I like to ask guests, pretend you're on a deserted island. You can only take one album with you. Don't worry about the technology. Uh, which album would you pick and why? Well, now you've thrown in that technology because my first answer was, gosh, albums, that seems like a long time ago. And uh, they are making um, a comeback. Though. They are making a comeback. Uh, my youngest son is, is asking me, why didn't I save all my, uh, my albums? Um, so I grew up in New Jersey. Um, Bruce Springsteen was, um, was not who he is today, but at the time was someone that we loved and listened to. And and so it'd probably be Born to Run, um, which was an amazing, amazing album. But that said, if I was on a deserted island, I think the last thing I'd want to focus on is listening to music. I'd, uh, I'd be more focused on um, exploring the island. Well, it's funny. I, I had one guest that said, could I bring a how-to album or, you know, an album that sort of explained how to build a house or a boat. Um, it's also interesting because this is probably going to land somewhere around the 55th, 60th episode of the show. I didn't have anyone mentioning Bruce Springsteen, and now I've had three people in the last five episodes that have mentioned Bruce Springsteen. So something in the water around Bruce. Well, maybe, you know, he's on, he's on Broadway now. And if you, if you remotely like Bruce Springsteen or you want to see an amazingly intimate performance. Um, when you go to see it, it's almost like you're sitting in his living room. It's just him on stage. A lot of it's acoustic. Sometimes he doesn't even use a mic. And uh, it's just fascinating understanding what his life was like. I think one of the most interesting things for me was when Born to Run, when he was on the cover of Time magazine and Born to Run was the number one album, he was completely broke and couldn't even buy his own dinner. And so you look at his life and you say, wow, what a life, what a life he lived. 
Well, it's an amazing note to end on. So uh, anyway, this is Aaron Strout. I am the CMO of W2O and the host of the What's Know podcast. We're at the uh, Evolution Health, or Health Evolution Summit here in SoCal. I've had the pleasure of spending some time listening to Glenn Tullman, who's the CEO, chairman, and co-founder of Livongo, Live on the Go. Um, talk and storytell. Thank you, Glenn, for spending time with us. Sure. It's been fun. Thank you. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.